This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, celebrating 25 years of taking on the toughest fights. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post and also a former healthcare reporter. And today we have two guests with us for an important conversation about menthol cigarettes and particularly the FDA's upcoming effort to ban them as well as targeting of the black community um, with this product. We have Dr. Keith Weilu, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. And we also have Dr. Georges Benjamin, who's the executive director of the American Public Health Association. Gentlemen, thanks to you both for being with us today. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, let's start by setting the stage here. Uh, Dr. Benjamin, what is menthol and why is it added to cigarettes? Well, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a cooling agent um, and it mis- makes it more tolerable to take you know, this very hard substance, which has no medical value or health value whatsoever, uh, into your mouth and into your lungs. And as you can imagine, the tobacco industry has figured out that if you add this toxic substance or this substance to their toxic product, um, then people are much more likely to use it. Well, thank you for that. Um, and you know, we know as the video that we, that we just watched noted, we know Black Americans are much more likely to pick menthol cigarettes um, to the point where more than 85% of African Americans who smoke choose them. Dr. Weilu, can you walk us through why we've seen that trend and why that has increased so much in recent decades? Yeah, I mean, as your video says, that if you in the 1950s, menthol and race was not connected. If you asked most tobacco executives in 1961 or 62 whether there was a black affinity for menthol smoking, they would look at you quizzically. They wouldn't even maybe recognize the question because as far as they were concerned, menthol smoking was taken up by people who were health anxious, doctors uh, Dr. Benjamin just mentioned the kind of cooling agent. So, so menthol doesn't really cool, but it gives you the sensation of coolness. And it was marketed at, for its health appeal. Um, early cool ads said things like, you know, when April showers make you cough like crazy, refreshing cools tastes fresh as a daisy. Um, it was in the 1960s that the industry, when deprived of both um, this kind of explicit health marketing, um, but also during which a time when marketing to youth and campus marketing was closed off as a tactic, they pivoted aggressively to urban marketing in the 1960s. And it's really starting in about 1964 that you begin to see a kind of deceptive, stunning precision of a new kind of uh, aggressive marketing to urban black uh, smokers in the in cities like St. Louis and Chicago and Cleveland and New York City and Philadelphia. And in some ways, it's the the shrewdness of this effort that has ended up building uh, this menthol marketing in what the industry called poverty markets. Uh, Others called, um, they talked about a cool inner city research project. And they used tactics like um, giving out uh, free samples to people who were regarded as 
individuals of, of prestige in cities like St. Louis to hand out these products in a sort of secretive manner. And so there are a wide range of tactics that were used to kind of build menthol as a consumer product. And of course, also wrapping menthols in the veneer of black pride and black self-sufficiency was also a key tactic as well. Well, and do you think that the misperception still exists that this is a, a healthier or at least less damaging product than a, a regular cigarette? Absolutely, oh, no it does. Sorry, let's let's uh, go to Dr. Uh, Weilu on that first. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the long legacy, the belief that menthols are um, health promoting, um, this led to the rapid increase in menthol smoking in the 1950s, precisely at the time that smoking was being linked to cancer. Uh, and so the industry has well understood the sort of therapeutic associations of mentholation on the throat and the nose uh, and the mouth, and they have used that to very potent effect. It, it has become increasingly implicit in the uh, in the marketing efforts, but it's still there as a continuing feature of mentholated smoking's appeal. And of course, we're talking about this right now because the FDA has promised to release a more detailed menthol cigarette ban this spring, and we're waiting on that right now. I'd like to hear from each of you about this impending ban, what, what you're hoping that it might look like. Let's start uh, with you, Dr. Benjamin. Yeah, we're obviously hoping that um, the FDA will just simply outlaw menthol completely. Um, it, again, other than the fact that it um, accelerates the use of um, this very toxic product, tobacco, um, it really doesn't have any other value other than that, even in you know to um, to health in any kind of way. Uh, and I think the other problem you have, of course, is that it doesn't just extend it to um, cigarettes, but it also extends to cigars. Uh, and they even have it as part of other flavors as additive agents in e-cigarettes as well. And Dr. Weilu, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think in some ways this ban is a long time coming. Back in 2009, when uh, President Obama signed uh, legislation that finally gave the FDA jurisdiction over tobacco products. Imagine that over, you know, the last over the 20th century, there was no FDA jurisdiction over tobacco products at all. So that changed in 2009. And one of the things that that legislation did is it banned flavored uh, cigarettes, characterizing flavors, no strawberry cigarettes, right? No other forms of flavoring, which is seen as an illegitimate enticement, particularly to initiators and youth. But menthols escaped that ban. And that has a lot to do with the way in which the industry provided support, uh, sadly, to some black lawmakers who were under the, the, the mistaken belief that mentally and smoking was a black preference and therefore to ban it would be discriminatory. And it's because of that menthol exemption that FDA was handed authority to make the determination. So you could say menthol escaped the ban in 2009. It escaped a couple of other actions by FDA. Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner under the form, in the former administration announced a ban and then left office thereafter. So easily you would say this is the third time that uh, the FDA has moved or congressional figures have moved against menthol. And the question is, is the third time going to be 
the charm? And I'm guessing yes, based on just reading the events um, in the FDA, uh, moving the proposed rulemaking to the Office of Management and Budget recently. Well, and I, I want to ask Dr. Benjamin about that um, because, uh, you know, as you note, menthol has kind of slipped slipped under under the radar uh, in some sense over the past decade. Uh, Dr. Benjamin, Benjamin, are you concerned that we're going to see OMB watering down the regulations? Well, OMB should not um, water down the regulations. It makes no sense. And let me just remind everyone that uh, tobacco, um, of course, is the leading cause of preventable death for public health. Um, but for those people who think that this is kind of an adult choice, recognizing that almost all people who smoke begin to um, use this addictive substance in their youth. So they're really, in many ways, targeting to youth. And it is cause of heart disease and more lung disease and more kidney disease. Um, it, it is a factor, heart, you know, tobacco is a factor in infant mortality. And so we absolutely want to make sure that the Office of Management and Budget understands that they're not just making a, a, a simple policy decision here, but they're making a decision which impacts a whole range of chronic diseases, again, responsible for over uh, 45,000 um, preventable deaths. Um, and after almost the last 40 years, if you add that up, um, that's almost um, you know 380,000 um, premature deaths. Um, also look at what, what COVID, we just went through COVID and the people that most um, likely to be impacted by COVID um, were people with chronic diseases, and that included people who smoked. Uh, and so that, again, the utilization of menthol indirectly um, exacerbates these chronic diseases. Um, and so when OMB is thinking about this, even from a fiscal perspective, um, this will ultimately save lives, but it will also save money and it will ultimately save government money, government money to the taxpayers. Dr. Benjamin, I also want to ask you, though, about the FDA commissioner. And as you know, uh, Robert Califf, who was just recently confirmed, was also FDA commissioner uh, during this time that, as we already noted, menthol sort of slipped under the radar and was unregulated. And it seemed as though the agency gave in to a lot of the demands of the tobacco industry. Uh, do you have confidence now that Robert Califf is going to push back against that this time around? Um, Dr. Caleb has a free hand. Um, his expertise is cardiology. He clearly understands the critical linkage between tobacco and, and, and heart disease. Um, and if anyone, um, he would be in the driver's seat to make this happen. And I, I fully expect um, Dr. Caleb to be strongly in support of banning menthol. Okay, um, I've got an audience question now that I'd like to uh, send to Dr. Weilu and it's this, Leonard Glantz in Massachusetts asks, why did cigarette companies choose to market menthol cigarettes to black communities? Wouldn't the companies make more money if they got people of all races to smoke their products? Yeah, so the answer is that they did uh, market to a wide range of consumer groups. So it's by no means the case that menthols were exclusively advertised to African-Americans. But in the 1960s, because African-American fashion, African-American culture, African-American music was widely emulated by white youth, the growth market was incredibly appealing. You adorn your product uh, with black motifs and what the industry realized is that you could actually win over both black smokers but also young white uh, white youth smokers. Um, Salem cigarettes were um, 
pre predominantly, well, at least the, there was a prevalence for uh, young women smoking Salem's and cool cigarettes tilted towards African-Americans. So the industry was very savvy about um, what you might call uh, segmented marketing and understanding the different kinds of ways you pitch a particular product like menthol to different groups. I mean, still today, you know, people have the sense that 85% of African-American smokers preferring menthol brands means that it's a black exclusive product. Well, 30% of white smokers smoke menthol brands. So what you find today is that there's just a disproportionate tilt towards African-American smokers who prefer and smoke mentholated cigarettes. And that's a byproduct of this aggressive, intensive marketing strategy over the course of decades. But it's by no means exclusive. And Dr. Whaley, you've written a book on this topic, of course, called Pushing Cool. And in it, you describe a sort of perverse alliance between some different players. Can you tell us more about who these players were and what the nature was of this arrangement? Yeah, I think that, you know, what, what's important to understand is that the history of rolling back the reach of cigarette into different vulnerable communities has been very strong over the course of history. Uh, banning television and radio ads, banning uh, pitches on college campuses, banning pitches to children, um, and banning flavored cigarettes. But along the way, cigarette companies have had ardent defenders. So for instance, when RJ Reynolds came out with a brand called Uptown in 1990, announced that it would be marketed only to black people. Um, the HHS, the Health and Human Services Secretary, a black physician named Lewis Sullivan in the Republican administration called out this tactic as slick and sinister and promoting a culture of cancer. But surprisingly, perhaps to many, um, the industry's right to market to blacks was defended by the executive director of the NAACP, Benjamin Hooks. And this highlights the way in which the industry has been able to secure its place in black communities by garnering support among uh, African-American influencers, leaders, uh, largely because they are also being supported by industry dollars. So the Uptown campaign um, was greeted um, enthusiastically by um, by by Benjamin Hooks, while it was lashed by uh, Lewis Sullivan. And the black media in Philadelphia, which depended it, uh, on advertising revenue from the industry, remained largely silent. This is just an indication of the kinds of webs, uh, the webs that have helped to keep menthol smoking in place. Now, of course, what's wonderful about that story is that Lewis Sullivan's assault on criticism of calling out of R.J. Reynolds for this tactic ultimately led to the, the quick demise of uh, Uptown Cigarettes and in some ways helped to uh, generate the local activism that resulted helped to sort of generate the skepticism and the local criticisms of these tactics that prob promised to come to fruition this year with the ban of mentholated cigarettes. So, so the tactics that the industry has used have been highly effective at, in some ways, planting the seeds of skepticism uh, in the black community itself. Anytime there's a sense that their interests are being undermined, they will find individuals like um, Benjamin Hooks and others to speak on their behalf. Well, 
and and all of this all of this is so interesting to understand the these industry pressures and tactics as we think about where we're at now uh dr benjamin how do you view all of this now in terms of the influence that the industry is trying to exert over black lawmakers and black policymakers i, I think it's going to be very important that we continue to reach out to um, um african american and other in the hispanic and other um, lawmakers and policymakers, so they understand um, the the real trade-off here, um, and the fact that the industry, quite frankly, has profiled us um, in in very negative ways because they know that they can sell their toxic product, and this is a very very toxic product, um, again with no particular redeemable value whatsoever uh, to our communities, um, and it is exactly the same tactics that other drug users drug pushers use in communities. They give away free product, they market it, they sub-segment the, the market very well, um, and then they, this is an addictive drug. And we should think of this as a terribly addictive drug um, which kills people prematurely. And those lawmakers neither really understand that. And Dr. Benjamin, on the flip side of that, who have been the, the loudest voices on the other side of, of trying to urge more regulation and just less use of menthol cigarettes? Well, um, my, my colleague here, Keith, has obviously written a great book and we should promote that. Um, but um, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, uh, excellent example. My organization, American Public Health Association, um, the Truth Initiative, um, which is a camp, it is a foundation that was set up um, under the Master Settlement Agreement, have been groups that have been very active, um, particularly with youth activity, to try to um, do a better job educating people about the harms of, of tobacco. Um, the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, all those groups have been working um, lockstep at the hip to try to make sure that tobacco um, is not used um, effectively in this country. So we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, the, the positive side or, or, or why we should be regulating menthol cigarettes more, banning them, but I want to throw um, some questions around that at you. Um, that, 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 uh, those that onlookers have raised about potential downsides. And one is that, as you know, if menthol cigarettes were federally banned, their sale and distribution would be punishable as a felony. And some civil rights groups have raised concerns that this could actually worsen incarceration among black Americans. Dr. Benjamin, what do you make of that argument? Yeah, well, the FDA is going after the industry, not individuals. Um, and so we need to make sure the regulations target the industry uh, and not individual smokers. You know, they're, they're, the, the Gardner story in New York, uh, because of the, the, the single sales, um, is um, fresh on many people's minds, but that is not what's supposed to happen here. And we need to make sure that both the law and the regulations come out to focus on the companies, not individuals. And we hope that the enforcement authorities would also understand that this is um, basically big industry that's targeting individuals and that we should not treat the victims of that targeting. Well, and as you note, uh, you know, it, you're correct that the FDA has said it won't go after any individuals for using menthol cigarettes, only manufacturers and retailers. Uh, Dr. Weilu, what do you make of that promise from the FDA? Uh, I applaud that promise, and but I also think that what's very important to realize here is that those who say that a ban will lead to 
uh, more uh, people like George Floyd or Eric Garner being murdered um, as young black men are subject to policing for smoking what would be bootleg menthols. I think that they, they are using a legitimate civil rights issue, a legitimate set of concerns about discrimination and racism. Uh, but they also have the story wrong in many ways. They're using um, these acts of discrimination to help support the industry's right to sell and continue to exploit black lives. So sadly, this is actually part of the familiar playbook of the industry. That is to say, uh, this is part of what has allowed the industry to keep menthol present in, in cities. They have it wrong for one particular reason. Um, you know, the murder of Eric Garner uh, while selling loose cigarettes gave rise to the familiar cry, I can't breathe. And it's echoed tragically by Mr. Floyd. Um, but menthols are intimately part of the history of I can't breathe. They're part of the history of predation and inequity. They're part of the history of the devastating effect that this product has on black people's ability to breathe, all, many people's ability to breathe, ending often in premature, tragic death. So the people, the, the difference is that the people responsible for this targeted phenomenon aren't on a video. They work very quietly in boardrooms and in social science settings and psychology, uh, but their work slowly extracts life and breath from black people. It happens very quietly, uh, and it's also extracting wealth from black communities. And so in some ways, while I understand the concerns about um, civil rights and the possibilities of targeting, the problem is that the true story of what menthol ban is intended to stop is not these kinds of imagined deaths from black um, from police killings, which remain a deep civil rights concern that we should mitigate going forward, but the thousands and thousands of previous unseen and future deaths that happen off camera also ending in the plea, I can't breathe. Well, and you wonder if um, this also is, there's a misperception perhaps that, you know, as we know, black people are using menthols more, but it's not because they inherently love menthol cigarettes more, it's because of this this targeted marketing, as you say, for decades upon decades that has led to this situation. Um, I know that we do have some test cases when we look at the states, uh, at least two, Massachusetts and California have actually banned menthol cigarettes entirely. Dr. Benjamin, do you have a sense of how those bans are working out in those places? Um, um, reasonably well, but I think that the, you know, it's early. And I think the, the hope is that um, the states should continue, um, not really wait for the federal government. I mean, the federal government even, um, once OMB rules, um, it will take a time to get that in place. So I would encourage other states to put bans in place. Um, and then again, not allow, uh, as Keith pointed out, um, us to make a false choice because people will die prematurely from heart disease, lung disease, and cancer um, because of the use of tobacco, um, you know, accelerated by the use of menthol. Dr. Whalu, what about you? Uh, have you taken a look at the state level, what states are doing there? And do you think that's uh, a sort of second second alternate pathway, I suppose, if we don't end up with the federal ban that's been promised? It certainly is in cities and in states uh, and entire countries outside of the U.S. have banned menthol smoke, uh, menthol products. Um, I, I think it is early days to figure out what the implications will be uh, because 
in many ways these these bans on sale have been are just only now being implemented. So it is it is rather early, but I do think it's important to be watchful because you know when 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 tobacco um, advertising on television and radio was banned. Uh, and the industry was deprived of the mechanism of mass marketing. This is one of the this is one of the catalysts in 1970 for increasingly intensive urban focused marketing in order to make up for lost markets. So one of the things we always have to be watchful for in this industry is that one ban, whether it's a ban on college advertising, whether it's a ban on advertising to kids, whether it's a ban on television and radio, whether it's a ban on billboards, which came out of the master settlement in the late 1990s, all of them have led to other strategies that also fly under the radar of regulation. And so this is what I would be watchful for in knowing and having studied the industry uh, in through this book. And Dr. Whaley, you alluded to the situation in other countries. What do we see when we look elsewhere in terms of how they regulate uh, menthol products? Well, I mean, the difference in other countries like the UK or Canada is that menthols have never been as, um, as widely used. And so the impact on the market has not necessarily been um, as significant, nor has been the regulatory debate. I mean, it was just widely understood that flavored cigarettes are initiator products, as the industry itself described it, they're starter products that draw especially young smokers into smoking in a, in a more pleasurable way, as the industry describes it, and that leads to lifelong smoking. And so most of the other countries have really seen this as the primary problem. That is to say, a device for initiating use into a highly addictive substance that has short and long-term devastating health implications. I've got another audience question that I want to send to Dr. Benjamin. Uh, Margaret Hoagie in Australia asks, statistics seem to indicate that raising the price of tobacco has been the most effective way to help smokers to quit. Is this the case in the United States? And what is the next most effective method? Dr. Benjamin, what would you say to that? There's no question about that. Um, raising tobacco taxes has been an extraordinarily effective mechanism um, to utilize, to reduce um, utilization. Um, and particularly for children, children are very, very price sensitive. I think the other thing, of course, has been the efforts to limit um, children's accessibility to tobacco. So this is putting the sales behind counters. This is making sure that you uh, raise the age of tobacco, um, the ability to purchase tobacco. Um, those kinds of things are extraordinarily effective here in the United States. Uh, Dr. Whalu, another question to you about uh, just this marketing question. I find this so interesting. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years as, uh, about e-cigarettes and how they're targeting kids. Um, do you see any parallels between that marketing campaign and then the, the marketing campaign around menthol cigarettes back in the 1970s? Yeah, there, there are a number of parallels. One is that I would say that shockingly and surprisingly, the menthol cigarette came onto the market in the 1920s and 30s as the answer to harsh smoking 
in other brands. So mentholated smoking emerged as the kind of, you know, the way to soothe your throat, what was called smoker's throat, uh, with this, quote, medicated uh, cigarette. Interestingly enough, the e-cigarette emerged, at least for some, as the answer to tobacco smoking, that is to say, as a smoking cessation product. But the parallel also continues in which you might say the menthol smoking market expanded with this deceitful product. And there was always kind of implicit luring of youth smokers. And this is also the story in a shorter period of time with the e-cigarette, the idea that a product that came onto the market promising to be the solution to the problem of smoking now becomes a, pro a problem in itself, especially because young people take it up so avidly. So, you know, th they, they have similar pathways that they follow. But the other issue that I would raise with e-cigarettes is that, you know, e-cigarettes are, um, well, let me just stop there. I would say that th therein lies the kind of dilemma. The, the other thing that I would say the FDA confronts is the idea that if e-cigarettes really were a smoking cessation product, then you could actually see the Food and Drug Administration embracing it a little bit more, even uh, if it has within it nicotine that is addictive, uh, in the same way that Nicorette gum or the nicotine patch is embraced as a, a better product, an improvement over tobacco smoking. So I think that the, 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 the FDA has a dilemma that it's confronting, which is, you know, whether to try to encourage the e-cigarette to be all that it promised to be in its early stages, which is not a route into smoking because of nicotine dependence, but a pathway out of tobacco smoking. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But Dr. Waylu, Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. To check out what interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about all of our upcoming programs. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.